And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Adam Duritz of Counting Crows. I will never forget where I was and what it felt like the first time I heard Round Here. It was the demo of the song. I was still working in the music business then. And by the time the second verse of the song kicked in, I knew I was listening to the kind of thing that only happens a few times uh, during the course of your life as a music fan. I, I knew I was hearing something uh, that was so real and powerful and executed on such a high level that I was a, a, going to be a fan forever. But but I also had much darker reaction to it because of where I was at that time in my life. And in a lot of ways, it was one of the things. The moment of hearing that song then was the beginning of a series of events that led me to leave the music business and finally take the chance uh, that I could become a filmmaker. And then, you know, Adam and Counting Crows ended up doing the end credit song to the first movie that my partner and I wrote, Rounders, and the whole thing came full circle. He and I don't know each other. We've met a couple of times, uh, but he is one of my favorite figures in rock and roll and one of the great songwriters, I think, of our time. And I'm really eager to talk to him about how he does what he does and why and uh, and if he's still as lonely as the lyrics make it seem. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Adam Duritsu. Adam, thanks for being here, man. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you again. And you. Uh, the... Uh, I guess we saw each other at Central uh, Central yeah, Park when you just played ago, yeah. about a month ago, and you looked like you were having a, a great time that night. It was a really nice show. I like playing, though. I mean, that's like I'm not sure what to do the rest of the day a lot of the time, but I like playing. Yeah, all right. That was a question I actually had um, written down to ask you. We'll ju- we can jump right into it, which is watching you that night and because I was hanging around because one of my oldest friends was opening for you yeah. Glenn Phillips and Toad so I was back backstage and talking and like it's something I've noticed over the years when I've seen you which is what is it you think that makes you more comfortable talking to 10,000 people than one person well I'm not sure I'm more comfortable talking to 10,000 people but I, I'm I know what to do singing to them I mean I don't talk a lot on stage I, I just do when I sometimes when something occurs to me I'll say it um but I'm not really sure. I don't know. Honestly, well, you, I'm kind of getting used to you, being weird. No, yeah, but the yeah. way that you communicate, that, that when you're on stage, you're so open and available and communicative when you're singing. It seems like you're at p- almost at peace in a way that it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily look like you are as much in, in other places. Well, I guess I have a... I'm trying to think how to describe this. I think being on stage is a, a huge struggle and a search and you're looking for things, but I have a real sense that there's, it's all okay to do. There's nothing wrong up there. Like you, you should go looking for things. You don't have to find them. Whatever you find, whatever you express is going to be fine. It just doesn't matter because the whole point of being up there is to express however you feel. So there is no wrong. I mean, there's certainly better and there's worse, but like, I, I feel like on stage, there's just no wrong. It's all, it's all about being there and exploring and looking for stuff and communicating with the other band members and just everything you do is okay. I don't think I feel that way about the rest of life. You know? Right. That in the rest of life, you're saying that the consequences are different. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's not all okay. It's not all about exploring how you feel the rest of life. Not because like people are judgmental, because there are other people's choices involved more because you, you live in a world with other people and, 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 you know, that's, there's only six or seven of us on stage, really, you know, there's a few more and nobody else matters that much. It's just, it's just us, you know, but out in the world, you know, you have to recognize that it's not all about your needs or your wants. It's like, you know, there's other people. 
and they have their desires too and they have their you know want, likes and dislikes and you run up against those all the time in life I mean, or at least I imagine you do maybe you don't run up as much as I think you do but I certainly imagine it that way well yeah I mean you're you're your songs, I mean, from the standpoint of a fan, I'll just, uh, you know, I mean, your 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 songs have been incredibly important to me in my life. I mean, for a, a very, very long time, you know, from when I first heard the demo from around here. And um, and so I've, I've listened so closely to them that, you know, the that search, that thing you're talking about, that the sense of feeling lonely within like loneliness alienation the consequences of these interactions wanting communion but then that communion being really hard to come by it, it seems to me like so much of that gets solved when you're singing to these people who are after the same kind of communion well i don't know i i uh i understand that people get a lot out of our songs i, I don't understand that but I'm I'm glad they do. I, I mean, it's not so much an interaction with people for me out there. It's really just it's an interaction with the band, those people, like my my friends that I know really well. To a certain extent, our crew too, you know, who are there. Actually, not to a certain extent, a very big part. The crew is because yeah. they're. I think my knowledge that I've known a lot of our crew members for twenty years too, and you know, we're all out there working together. Things are going wrong, but it's okay because they'll fix it. You know, um, and our communication with them. I don't know. It's just for me. There is a thing going on, but it's very much up there, and that's not a judgmental place. I mean, they're making we're making fun of each other all the time, but right. uh, I mean, my crew's decided that they need to wear cowboy hats every time we play uh, "Cover Up the Sun" these days. Right. Um, you know, which is their own little thing. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, deny that it's kind of funny, actually. You know, but it's just the audience and me. It's like I'm so glad they're there, really, because like it's the coolest thing, but. I have to remind myself to be aware of the fact that they're there every now and then because it's really I forget sometimes they're people it's we're doing this thing it's like oh yeah maybe I should say something but so when when you say that you're you're when you're up there though and you're putting across and connecting with these these words and you see the people looking at you and you see the effect that it has because when you say uh and I heard you say it before that, you know, you thought people would be depressed hearing the song. So you didn't understand that it would have the capacity to move them. But you must have the experience of artists moving moving you by by being willing to dig as deep as you do in, in the service of expression. Oh, yeah, very much. I mean, I'm a huge music fan. I mean, and that that's never really changed. Uh, but I, I guess I... It's it's different. Like my relationship to the stuff I listen to is a fan's relationship, and it doesn't necessarily dovetail into what I do as a musician. Like I can really really love uh, an artist or a record. It, it doesn't. I think for a lot of people they'd be like, well, why don't you call them up and go do something together? It never translates to that to me. It would never occur to me. It it, it does never occur to me. I'll do stuff with friends of mine. Whenever friends ask me, do you want to sing on this? I'm yeah, sure I'll go do that. Um, but it, it's never occurred to me as like a career strategy or something to do for fun. Like, I love a record. That doesn't mean I want to insert myself on it. You know what I mean? Uh, and even when we when we played when we were playing all the cover songs a couple years ago for Underwater Sunshine, it didn't mean I necessarily wanted to go play them with the people. <laughs> you know, honestly, because uh, you're you're in the, in the great thing about doing those covers is you're you're in, installing yourself in that song, and now it's your song. It's not someone else's song. You don't think about it being someone else's song. You think about it being your song. So then when they would come back to play, what, what are you supposed to do? That They don't fit in. Our versions are different. You know, it's a weird thing. It's like my my life as a fan, which is ongoing, doesn't necessarily intersect with my life as a musician, except I'm sure it does bleed across because there's all kinds of influences and stuff. But, but you do... So I get that you don't want to be friends with them, and I understand the distinction you're drawing that, that a fan... Because I, you know, thinking. Uh, no, I'd love to be friends with them. I just, uh, I'm just not sure how to. And I'd love to be friends with them. That's great. Because it'd be cool, but I, I, it doesn't necessarily want me to make me want to insert myself. Because I love what they do musically, and I wish I had more friends to hang out with that way. That seems really cool. But people make me really uncomfortable, and I don't, I don't necessarily like. 
it doesn't occur to me to insert myself in their world musically because what I do musically is like it's great there is no judgment I don't worry about whether someone wants me to be there or not you know it's like I don't necessarily want to like entwine all my insecurities and crazy with uh with like my work because I don't have a lot of insecurities and crazy with my work it's 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 very focused and it's a place that you feel safe well and or that I'm willing to feel unsafe too I, I like the risk of it I like the I don't worry about being unsafe on stage or when I'm recording. You just, you, you try things. It's an experimental place. Um, I just don't worry about those things. Um, and when you're with other, uh, other people intersecting, it's, it's harder. Right, in life. And it's... I've never been that social in that way. Like, I mean, I just, I never went to the award shows, really. I never, never hung out at the Grammys. That's why I loved the indie stuff the last few years. The Outlaw Roadshow for me, those indie showcases that Ryan and I, Ryan Spaulding and I put on, because when you start out, you have a peer group, you know, like it's weird at first because you're doing something no one else in your high school class did. So you lose the, the, like that peer group, but then you find yourself, well, there's a lot of other musicians like you and you're all playing music in some town and you're going to see each other play or you're opening for each other or you're closing for each other. And it's a really great, uh, circle of friends. Then you succeed and, and you're not really a part of that anymore. And it's weird because unless you want to go hang out at the Grammys or, uh, you know, the MTV Awards, you lose your peer group completely. Um, maybe that's part of why we've always, like, really been, like, enthusiastic about taking care of opening bands and bringing bands that we like on the road, because then you get that again. But with the Outlaw Roadshow, with all the indie bands, with 30 people staying at my house for CMJ, I kind of got the peer group back, which has been great for me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and you have, by the way, very loyal, just in taking bands out. I mean, you know, you... Uh, took Jacob and the Wallflowers out. I have this picture of my son and me backstage at Jones Beach. My son and my, my, was a four. I think. Oh, years ago then. Yeah, the first. And then that you big took storm. Yeah. yeah, and exactly that was that day. And then you know, you took them out. You guys went out and played again last year, the year before. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it seems like you do. Uh, I wonder if you consider it like this big family that you keep because Toad also. You know, you and Glenn. And you've always told him, like, uh, how much you appreciated what he did. And then I thought it was such a big deal when you reached out. Well, I mean, it's just that I guess I've also seen, like, there, there. I mean, when I was always treated really well at the beginning by bands that took us out, you know, Suede was great to us. Midnight Oil was cool. Uh, Stones were incredibly nice to us, like, really, really almost forcibly if you, not only were you welcome to go hang out in the voodoo lounge but if you didn't they would come get you you know ron and keith would come get you and try and teach you to play snooker or some other what did that feel like to you they were just really nice people it felt like okay we got to do the same thing and then like they were just cool about it so it always occurred to me like i don't know this is there's no need to be you know there's a certain thing in celebrity there's like there's like a uh a tradition of being a douchebag that a little power and then you get to yell at everyone uh, because it, in, a, in a way that a lot of other uh, jobs don't allow you to become an asshole, yeah. this does allow you. And But that always seemed like if my mom saw me do that, you know, I mean, not that I'm not tough and I don't yell at people because I do, you know, but like, I don't know. I remember very clearly being a young musician and starting out. I, I, it's just, it's not easy. It's a lot easier when someone is like there no, it's not a competition, so why not just help out the other bands? I just also it's you know it's friendships that build up over years and years with people you don't even see for years and years. You know, like I hadn't seen Glenn in a long time, but I remember all those tours we did. You know, and uh, and they were great, and it was really nice to see them playing this year, to see them like in a good place and like nobody having nobody on the road this whole summer of our three bands was having a breakdown or like trying to blow up their band you know there was none of that this summer and it was really nice to see because because there's great music there with all three bands and it's nice to see like I, I know why bands break up i know all the troubles they have but it was so great to see you know glenn and dean and todd and randy out there playing because like you can see it in people's faces too like it's a big part of their lives that toad played you know and and you know it's weird because like i know walk on the ocean is probably the biggest song but 
you see the look on people's faces when they play All I Want, and it's like they are reliving. It is a reverie. It's I, I don't think any of our songs do that. There's a it's like they're remembering a, a moment with their college friends. They're looking around to the people that are with them. They're they get this joy on their face. Yeah, which is like but, wow. Yeah, that's totally true. But I mean, twenty of your songs do that. Uh, uh, I will just say that I mean, um, for and, and there's you know I. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to even articulate it because I know that for you, and it's never hard for me to articulate these things, but those songs have become a part of our lives in a way. And that's why, even when I hear you say, oh, I don't really think about it, you sit on Seth Meyers. But I have to think that, okay, maybe you didn't anticipate it on August and everything after. But uh, I have to think that then uh, when you made the next records, some part of you knew that you were communicating well yeah now. but it doesn't it doesn't i mean i grasp that it happens but i'm not sure i understand it and it doesn't have anything to do with writing or recording really i mean or any, any more than it did when there was no one listening because you're still writing to someone who's listening you're still writing to communicate with people in a way but they're an imaginary people it's like they're the people that are in the audience of the huge concert you're playing to when you're actually in your bedroom writing the song. Yeah. But it's not a real group of people that you're really... It's just reaching out. And that now it turns out that that audience that I was imagining is actually out there every night. But they don't play any part in the writing or the recording. But or that the reaching out even. is a beautiful thing. I, yeah, I guess so. I just don't really think about it because it's... My biggest connection of it is when it's imaginary. When it's like me in my room alone or me with the guys at my house you know i mean just is it i'm wondering is this part of you worry that it is less pure if you're thinking about that other thing no it just doesn't have a lot to do with it because like look not that there aren't audiences out there who are great who are applauding but there's going to be a night when they're not you know and the truth is do you owe that audience any less of a great performance because they're less responsive because they're sitting down because they're because you can only see the first four rows. So you could have... This is why I don't think it's... I think it's better not to pay that much attention to it because you can only see the first four rows. So let's say the first four rows change every night or they're terrible every night. There's still five, ten thousand people behind them that you can't see who could be having the time of their lives and, like, what does it matter? And also, even if none of them are having the time of their lives, though, you're still on there. They paid for the tickets. You, you're, you're there to play a great show. And do you really want to be vulnerable to too much influence from people whose responsibility is really only to be there and enjoy it. You know, like, it is great when they stand up the whole time. It is great, like, at a show like Central Park where they have no choice. You know, where, like, it feels great on stage that way. But they're allowed to sit down, too. And they, I don't think, like... The problem with the audience thing is that you, you shouldn't depend on that because they're going to vary. And because, like, when you make a record, there'll be a year where you're the center of popular culture, maybe. But there will be lots of years where you're not. And does that make that record worth any less? Because I don't think it does. It's but, just... Yeah, but you know, I'm sort of wondering about how, how how you feel about... Everything you're saying about the live audience makes total sense to me. And, and I understand it as actually something you'd have to sort of tell yourself to do the thing that you do every night, um, which is to make yourself incredibly vulnerable and open um, and alive and present. But, uh, you know, the kid who's listening to Long December, and he's in Minnesota, and... Uh, you know, he's not going over to Samantha and Tracy's house, but he's hoping he can go to some other friend's house and just find a moment. And when, and I'm just wondering if some part of you knows or takes comfort or what your relationship is to those kids who who don't feel as alone because of what you do. I don't know. I mean, I... I... I understand it because I am one of them with other music, but I don't understand it with my music. I know it happens. You know, like, I remember in the beginning people coming to me and saying, getting a lot of, you know, advice from people who thought they knew best about songwriting. Don't use so many proper names. Don't use so many places. Don't be so specific about things because you're making the songs too personal and people won't be able to relate to them. And I remember thinking... Well, I don't know if that's true or not. It's still stupid advice because, like, this is how I write and this is what I want to do. To I know how to write. What I think is best involves specifics because that's what makes it personal to me. It and then you know what I came to think was this is when we were making our first album. I'm going to do this this way. This is the way I think 
my songs are best. It's very possible that people aren't going to relate to these. It's too personal a record. I get that. You know, you got to remember, we were in India, a college radio band. There's no sense that, like, everyone's going to initially rush out and relate to this record. Now they did. Okay, so clearly the people telling me not to do all those things were wrong. Maybe on some level the personal stuff is what attracts people to it. Because even if they don't know who, what Hillside Manor is, they understand it's something, you know, and it means something to them. But I don't really... It's still me in my room alone just thinking it's better to make these things personal. You know, and it wasn't about... When the people were telling me not to use the proper place names, that didn't make any sense to me either because, like, it's just... It's just because it's not about everyone else relating to it. It's about me relating to it. The fact that people do relate to it... Well, is a, is a, I'm so happy it happened because if they were all right, then if those people telling me how to write my songs were right about that... It would have meant we didn't have no success, and success has been great, but it still wouldn't have changed how I wrote the songs, because they were really about me relating to me, and and that's the thing. It's like, it's really hard to grasp that connection with other people. I know what it is, because I'm a fan of many people, and I have that connection to their music, but it's hard for me to... It's not a humility thing. It's probably just like a blinkered thing. I, just I was going to say, is that what you have to sort of tell yourself? Because I'm so interested in the process of how you do this, because you still... Um, dive deeply on that. I mean, the new album, um, which comes out, I think this podcast is going to be up the day of the album's release. And tell everybody the title of the album. Oh, it's called Somewhere Under Wonderland. And um, I've had it for the last few days and have listened to it uh, a, bu- a whole bunch of times. And uh, and it's it's excellent. And I would say that if you weren't sitting here. And it's sort of a joyous... It's a uh, not lyrically joyous, but it's a musically joyous record, I think. Um you know, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is not. a musically very angry record. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know if this is a reaction to that or not, or just where you find yourself now. Well, I think when I was writing Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings, it was a very different time in my life, too. I mean, you're affected by what you're going through when you write songs, and you write about where you are. You know, I, I've been dealing for a long time with you know, difficulties, mental illnesses, and, and trying to sort of be better, and writing about that in songs, and I think around the time that I was doing Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings, I'd kind of come to think, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to be okay, you know, like, yeah. that that this isn't necessarily, it's not like other diseases that you can just cure, it, it's possible and at the time, I felt like I was getting worse and worse, especially in the Saturday night section. Sunday mornings, not so much. But, you know, I just kind of came to the realization that this might not ever go away. And, and then that there wouldn't be a day maybe I woke up and I was fine. I could laugh about how it used to be. That it was just maybe always going to be like this, you know. And uh, that caused a lot of despair at that time, you know. And that's what that record is very much about, is... is feeling like you're, you know, at the time, especially because I thought I was getting worse and worse, which is, that's really scary because you feel like you're maybe going to lose control of yourself. Um, I didn't, though. You know, and Sunday mornings is about uh, at least recognizing that you're not falling down a hole anymore and at least trying to recover, if not about actually recovering. You know, and kind of in the years since then, that sort of despair at not getting better really took hold in some ways. Um, for some reason, it didn't make it hard to write. I wrote well for the play, I thought, but it made it hard to write for myself because I didn't want to talk about that. Um, I was getting tired of the plot arc in some ways, and it's funny, I, I wrote some great songs for the play because it was very liberating them not being about me because I didn't have to talk about that right. anymore. But one of the things I realized over the last few years, especially with all the creativity that went into the play and all the creativity that went into Underwater Sunshine, because I really love that record. Me too. You know, they're, they're covers, but they're... It's us embedded in them, and we really, really went into them. And uh, what it was I re- great following you on following that on Twitter as you were doing it was a, a great thing for your fan. You know, you, yeah, acoustic, you know, acoustic piano would show up. You the way you sort of brought it went through. So you're saying you made that album, you really cared about it, but it wasn't your it wasn't your songs. But I also realized during that period of time we had the best year of touring of our lives after Underwater Sunshine. I think it was great for the band to play other people's songs. It's just a really great thing to play other people's songs. I think it's really refreshing and. It, it makes you realize what a waste it is to spend your entire career just doing one person's songs. Even in this case when that person is me, because 
I'm not just a songwriter. I'm also a musician. And like, it turns out I love, and I love interpreting. I love just being a singer and just being like a musician that way. Underwater Sunshine gave me a chance to interpret all this stuff I would normally not get to talk about or sing about. And I think it did that for the whole band. And it was such a great thing that we went out on the road and became a far better live band. I mean, we were always a good live band, but we got great the last couple of years. You know what I mean? Just went way over the top with that. You know, when I realized after all that time, I think was that I don't know that this stuff is going to get any better. I don't know that it's ever going to be fine. Like the mental illness, I'm not sure it's ever, it's curable. I'm not sure it's ever going to go away. I'm not sure I'm ever going to have a life that's not somewhat hampered by that. But it also didn't kill me, you know, so and I'm still here and it was a very creative year in, in a different way than I was used to being creative, but it was very creative. And uh, I guess I just felt like when we got off the road from that, I just really wanted to make a record that was just ours again. I wanted to make, I mean, honestly, when I did Underwater Sunshine, I thought, God, this is such a great process. I could do cover albums for the rest of my career. I love interpreting other people's songs. There are people who spent their entire careers doing that. Of course. I mean, Dionne Warwick basically only sung for the most of her career Hal David, Brett Bacharach songs. And you know what? They're great. Sinatra. And Sinatra did that. The Jackson 5. You know, there's a lot of bands Al- that... Elvis Presley, who you yeah. reference on the... I mean, I just wanted... It just was so satisfying and so without the heaviness of what I'd been doing, you know. And But after that year, I've really felt like, you know what? I want to write. I want to create. I, I'm not sure how to do it. I think I have a different sensibility about it. And it's not just something I'd never done before. I had all the guys come to my house. You know, I was going to say, what was the process of writing this album? Well, I, I had a lot of pieces of things. You know, I used to feel like I was someone who's, who finished a song in a single sitting. Like, uh, whether it's a 40-minute sitting for Rain King or like an eight-and-a-half-hour sitting for Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. But I would stay there the whole time and do it. Um, and if I didn't, I just sort of figured it wasn't good enough and I would let it go and throw it out. But when I wasn't finishing a lot of songs other than for the play the last few years, I thought, well, I better sort of keep everything. So I kept the last year or so. I took notes of everything in my phone. I'd like sing just little snippets of things, little chord patterns. I read it in my songbooks, in my phone, in my computer. I just had all these notes and things. And we, I just asked the guys to come over to my house, Millard, Emmy, Dan, and we, uh, kind of started out excavating stuff. Just like, here's an idea I have. And I'd play it for them, and I'd, and they would flip out, you know. And, and the funny thing was, I realized now that when you're doing one thing for a long time, you're you're used to seeing good as different variations of that. So like, you can tell the different shades of blue that are good. And sometimes when you do something completely different, instead of looking like a rich green, it just looks like a shitty blue, you know. And I think what was happening with a lot of these songs is I was starting them, they weren't like the other stuff I'd been writing. And so I sort of put them aside because I thought they weren't good. But when I brought them out and played them for some of the guys, just the ideas I had, they started flipping out over immediately. And that made me take them a lot more seriously. And we the first, we did about a week every month for the fall. We would, like, crash out at my house for a week in August and September and October. Uh, you know, the road show came in the middle of that. And uh, the first time, we excavated a lot of pieces, but we really only finished one song. I finished God of Ocean Tides a couple days after everybody left. Uh, the second time everybody came to town, in six days we did five songs. Uh, Earthquake Driver, Elvis Went to Hollywood, Dislocation, Scarecrow, and Cover Up the Sun. In in six days. Five songs in six days. And it, I have never... It should be impossible to write that amount of... Uh, that kind of output in that, in that sort of period. But we did. It just like... You know, the funny thing was, the whole time I felt guilty about the other guys sitting around, having to sit around and wait for me while I was working on stuff. Um... And the, but the truth is, it was like five songs in six days. I was gonna say, yeah, they weren't waiting that long, obviously, because yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't seem like that long, but it, you know, it's, it's still hours of sitting. You know, our, our, you know, they were very. It's like we would bounce ideas off. Nothing ever died because I would try an idea and they would have a solution to my problem, whatever it was. You know. No, I saw. And I saw. And I saw on the credits uh, that you, you know, the, you share credit on music on a bunch of the songs with those with the the guys in the band. So you must have felt like they really there were real contributions. Oh, no, I mean, very real. There's a lot of these things where just... These songs, there's no way this record gets written without them being there. But you mentioned God and uh, God, God of Ocean Tides, and, and uh, it, it, once again, like, in that song, and it's a, a great thing, and it's a thematic that um, you keep returning to, and it's this idea of the dream of California. 
And in a weird way, in a great way, you, um, it seems to me, you use California and, and Los Angeles in the way Bruce would use, like, the idea of the highway as some kind of possi- some kind of possibility. Well, sort of. I think, though, in some ways on this record, it's it's sort of the opposite. Because it's, I mean, the, the line in that song is all night long writing poems oh, to California, yeah. melodies of failure and the people well, I've thrown away. Yeah, well, the, uh, it's I was kind of say- looking back at my career and saying... You were el- you were you were like making elegies about this thing. Where did it get you? I, I'm not sure. You know that that, that this is a, that uh, maybe the true home in that song is is the bus. You know that that you don't ever get that, that it wasn't California. It was it's the bus where you're moving through. You know, going always going somewhere else. But it's interesting. You don't put like the the home because like the I had I'd written down this this question, which was that um, that it seems like even on this album, there's like this promise of communion and connection and that maybe the possibility that if you can finally at least convince yourself to believe in a possibility of hope at least you can like get through the, the day but we don't really see you land well, right we we don't really see the other the other side of it it's like okay but if, as long as i have the possibility but that is what life is kind of i mean you, you know one of the things that really i had to get a grip on at one point was that there's a difference between being doomed, like really being doomed, and being someone who whose mind works in a certain way where you feel like you're doomed when things happen. You know, and I had to realize that like just because I felt that way repeatedly, that maybe that was part of the dissociation and part of the mental illness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are. That like no matter how many things happen, there is like like I said, I, I'm not dead. And and that means something different could happen tomorrow. Which is kind of what Possibility Days is about. That like, that's a song about things falling apart in a relationship, and the decision you come to is though that, that the fact that it happened at all means things are possible. It, you know, not to be a Pollyanna, not to be like, it's not like foolishly optimistic, but it is about look, you're not dead, so things can happen tomorrow. And I think that's a definite theme on this album. But just as much, you don't land. There's no landing on this album for mo- for most of the characters. They don't land in like ah, everything's fine now, you know. N- n- right, and I mean, uh, to me, it. I hear echoes of, of the first album. In. Maybe it's somebody who's more aware, of the predicament, and maybe you're more comfortable that it's you. You're, you know, I'm not going to say you're Maria, but it's more comfortable in a way. You're able to sort of, take on the man, the mantle, or the the narrator of the song is taking it on more personally in a way, um, but the. The struggle of feeling alienated, wanting connection, and understanding the limits of of that connection. Well, I think it, I also made a point in several songs of debunking some of the the mythologizing of all the other songs that, like you know, that yeah. that the guy refers to the to basically your career as poems to California, melodies of yes. failure, and the people I've thrown away. It's like. You know, it's like uh, well, but that dovetails with Los Angeles and you can't count on me. I mean, well, yeah, that I mean, for I mean, sure. Those two, th- those two songs are totally connected to that song. I, I, I think, and it's another way of reframing it, right? Yeah. Well, I think that you can say it as many times as you want, but people are always going to romanticize something that sounds good, and that's the whole point of you can't count on me, which is like, look, how many songs do I have to write about being like <laughs> just being a desperately yeah. bad idea to be around, right? You know, and I don't know. You know, I think also that well, like. Uh, yeah, and yet John, John Appleseed's Lament. I very purposely on that song used the same opening line for the most part as as Round Here. Right. A song about a person who steps out his front door and then goes out to see the world and see what, what all the possibilities are of life around him. You know, it's a it's a it's it is born to run in a way. It's like you're opening up it's an, a, a boundless possibility in front of you, you know. And uh step out the front door like a ghost. And this one is I stepped out the front door into winter. I specifically use the same word, stepped out the front door. You know, this is a song about a guy who Round here, a song about a guy who opens his front door and walks out and sees the world unfold in front of him. And this is a song about a guy who walks out the front door, looks around, can't remember what the hell he's doing, and goes back inside. All in the first verse. So everything else that happens in the song is possibly in his imagination. It's possible it didn't happen at all. You know, I kind of wanted to, like, you know, he's just crazy and sit in his room, but he's certainly got a powerful imagination up there in that room. Because everything that happens is almost bigger in a way than around here. It's like, uh, I mean, I really love that song because of that, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, what you hear throughout the whole thing, throughout the whole album, um, to me, the you know, the person who still wants to be someone who believes. Well, yeah, I mean, I think 
there's just no upside to not believing. It just, it gets really dark, you know, and I don't, I don't, doesn't mean that I, I don't know how things are going to turn out, but I do know it's possible, you know, and so that, that's a good reason to wake up in the morning, you know, it, it'd be kind of want to see what happens. Well, and it all, I mean, it, it also ties in, you know, uh, to me, you know, you look at, uh, even Mrs. Potter, which is a, a dream. I never know anyone at the party and, and I'm the host, uh, it's the same kind of, uh, the, the wanting to be within this big group, knowing the group is looking to you for answers that you can't, you can't give them. Well, in, in Mrs. Potter's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know people, but like a lot of songs on this desert life, he ends up with, you know what, we're going to go out to Pioneer Town and we're going to play some rock and roll for some people. You know, we're going to drive out to the desert and play rock and roll because in the end there's just this re redemption in that. Just like but hanging I'm around. Saying like yeah. you don't, but I'm saying like you, don't, like you don't know all these people who are looking to you. In fact, you can't, part, it seems like part of you can't even, doesn't even really want to um, like own the way that they're looking at you because you're telling them over and over again... I can only be what I can be for you. I can't be. I can't be more than that. I can't answer this all for well, you. Yeah, I don't have answers for me, let alone for anybody else. You know, right. that album is a lot about people being stuck in places, even hanging around. You know, I'm going to worry about that after the lights are out. Right now, it's time to just like, yes, I'm stuck in this one place, but I'm going to go out and do something crazy. You know, and that's what he does at the end of hanging around. It's what happens in Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. These guys are still going out there even though they don't know what they're looking for and you think of these these people as characters not as you oh i don't know it, no th those ones those are me for sure right, yeah because you're saying that guy i'm saying yeah i mean i always hear them as i think it, even if you're not you know always completely confessional it does feel like you're trying to let us know what you are well the, the earlier albums are much more first person to me than this one. That was the big change on this record that I think I didn't yeah, well, recognize this one at first. Yeah. But I mean, I do think what I realized is that I can, I can write about these songs are still about the same thing all the other songs are about. It's how I feel about things. Um, I, I could put them in by using other characters other than myself. I didn't have to abide by the plot arc of what my life was going through. I didn't have to like. I could talk about anything I wanted to. I had a bigger world to express things in by not just putting every story in in my own mouth. I could write about living on the fringes and be, like, you know, like Palisades Park is about uh, like yeah. two kids, a lot like we were, all of us, you know, like you're not doing what everyone else in your high school class does. You're, you're living something else and it's a very fringe life and you feel very strange and especially scary at first because you don't know how you're going to take care of yourself. But you, you know, it worked out for us. But for a lot of people playing music, it doesn't. But that's not the point. The point is that you're there. And I think it's very much Palisades Park is a sort of celebration of that. It's also a celebration of some times that I was really fascinated with, you know, both like the factory period in the 60s, which are some like periods of sort of like expression and freedom of expression, but not the ones that everyone sort of like tends to sort of romanticize as the this great like peace like the six late 60s peace and love that's period. something you got the Edie Cedric you know? reference on there because well, I'm talking is, about New York not right. San no I know you're, you're mentioning Edie and it's like uh, it's clear you're not talking about some sort of like uh, utopian no I'm view. talking about that, that sort of art scene in the 60s and then later in the you know the punk scene in the 70s when everyone you know and for me also because you know growing up in San Francisco at that period there was this you know incredible explosion of uh, this party going on with all these people who had been repressed wherever they were came out to California and found a place they could be you know and and although the, the sexuality of the sort of gay revolution in the in the late 70s in San Francisco didn't have any reaction to me at all but the freedom of it I mean and they were not checking IDs so like we were kids <laughs> no, and we you would were sneak to... over to San Francisco and we would go to these bars and you know later on when I saw like La Cajo Foal or Moulin Rouge, and I was like, well, that's really cool, but that was, I saw that up close. That's what it looked like. I mean, I, I can guess what, the you know, Paris in the 20s was like, because San Francisco in 1978, 79, and I'm like 14, and it is crazy. And, and, and you think that, imp that imprinted stuff? Sure, because like, you could see all these people who had been so, like, the liberation of it for them, the freedom of it, even though, like, 
I didn't relate at all to what they were doing. The, the sexuality of it meant nothing to me, but the the, the sense of freedom, and especially because like, I wasn't sure, even as a kid, like all the things everyone else was talking about doing in their lives didn't really seem to make sense to me. I, I wanted to do something very different. I Did wanted to express something, even though I wasn't writing songs and I didn't know what it was. I just wanted to... I wanted something out there on the fringes, you know, and, and here are people who are living that. It's a different one than what I'm living, but it's still... And, and clearly for a lot of their lives, people have been telling them you can't. And they had been brutalizing them. And all of a sudden, because this is before AIDS comes along, you know, and all of a sudden it's just like utter freedom and, and hedonism in a way. But like, but for me, it just looked like liberation, you know, it just looked crazy. And was there, there was something about that that you wanted to chase? Yeah, man. I mean, I want to chase all that. I, I wanted to be free to do whatever I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know what that was because, you, you know. But so what is that, like, what is that, that. What does the dichotomy feel like for you? And, and and it's something that you're so open about in in the music, you know. Um, you know, you'll, you're somebody who who's always aware in his music of the, the, you know, have you been aching to trust or just have you been waking yourself with lust? And like, you know, calling yourself to task or whoever you, the character is, but calling yourself to task professing in some way to want true romantic attachment I, the idealized version but then knowing also you're someone who you know is like let's get drunk and find us some skinny girls but lust, lust is, a, is, a, is a real yeah, feeling sure. too just to be the you know like of course because you, when you're a kid people tell you your parents your teachers everyone tells you you know you can do whatever you want in your life but what I saw when I was a kid there was a group of people who had clearly been not only and not only not allowed to do whatever they want in their lives, but absolutely brutalized for it. And you know, it also was clear to me that even though you can quote unquote do anything you want to do with your lives, you still have to be able to take care of yourself. Like there's a real world you have to live in when you do that. And so somehow you have to be able to do whatever you want, but also be okay and take care of yourself and the people around you that matter. You have responsibilities. You're going to end up having responsibilities to lots of people, especially if you're someone like me. I, I just knew that was going to happen, you know. And but, but you're, you're yes, I I agree and I understand. Yeah, lust is a part of life, but it seems like in the songs, at the same time you're saying, "Look, you can't count on me. I'm bad news." Part of you, it's almost like the old romantic poet stuff, like the 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 battle against solipsism that you're. Uh, you wish somehow that you could transcend wanting to get drunk and find some skinny girls on sunset. No, I, I don't think that's it at all. I just wish it would be okay. I wish I could feel okay with whatever it is that you want to do, with I, that I want to do. Like right, that's what I'm saying though. That trust. you don't feel okay about it. Well, for no, some but reason. I really feel okay at all. I mean, <laughs> like in my head, I'm, everything's very scary and weird and alien. You know, people are a uh, weird. I don't connect the way I wish I did. You know that, and and when I do connect, I can't seem to hold on to it. That like these are things you wish could. You wish you could just feel a sense of satisfaction and okayness that everything is fine. You wish you could come to rest, and it's not about being a bad guy because I don't think I am a bad guy. But the the but the fact of my disability, if you want to call it that, this this illness, with all the best of intentions, it can turn out tragic for other people as it does for me. It's not just me. The fact is. You want to fall in love? Well, now you're involving another person in your life, and and you're responsible for them. So if you are unable, if they if they give themselves to you, they put their heart into you, and you are unable to hold on to that safely, then you you will hurt them, and that's part of it. You know, it's part of what you want when you are you aching to trust. You know, and but I found myself unable to make those connections and hold on to those things. And it doesn't make you a bad person, but it does make it hard on the people around you and i feel bad about that that's what i'm saying i don't think it may I, i'm not uh judging i'm saying that you don't seem so, uh, in your songs to f to forgive yourself sometimes well i'm not sure i do but uh i also i also do excuse myself but i think sometimes i may be over strenuously pointing out some of the bad things because nobody else does because they will listen to your songs and they will just assume it's all great and i think it was really important to me sometimes to remind myself and them that no there's it's not like this is this is craziness. This is insanity. It is mental illness. It's not just this cool thing you can have so that you can write interesting songs about being fucked up. That like this is bad, and in the end, it causes tragedy for everyone involved with it. 
it also causes some nice songs but that's not going to make you happy at the end of the day it's like it is it comes with a lot of stuff that's very seriously bad like nowadays it's such a a trite thing everyone says oh you know we're all a little crazy because everyone goes to therapy every day it, it ain't the same thing and i'm not trying to like do it to because like oh look at me i'm worse but it's just like knowing you've been incredibly open i mean I, I, and and i don't know if you ever saw that uh documentary on ricky williams the football player uh, you'd really like it. This thirty for thirty on the the football player Ricky Williams, who's an incredibly bright guy and, and and really was brave enough to show what mental illness sometimes really looks like. I always really liked him for his like. Oh, you got to see the doc. I'll 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 send you like what it is. Well, you know, it's funny it, that you did the Connors one too. Didn't yeah, you? that's your one. You know, I remember in that one, it's it's typical because you watch a thing about someone that you don't understand, and you're watching a documentary about someone you don't understand, and. That's the thing, you know, there's so much media nowadays, and we're all looking to understand the people we idolize. By understand them, we mean we want them to fit the role of the hero in the movie we see, where, like, in the yes. end, for all of his stuff, it's just something you didn't get it until now, and now you see why he was actually the best guy of all, you know? And so you watch this whole thing about Connors, and it is impossible not to like him as you're watching it, because it is. He's, like, especially with tennis, like, because like golf, tennis is so, like, up its own you know, and, and yeah. the white shorts that they still have to wear. You know, it's just it is. It was a country club, and now and then, and he put a stop to that in a way. Like, but you get to the end of it, and you're waiting because the whole time through it, you're talking about his friendship with Aaron Crickstein, and Crickstein's talking about how like he used to go over his house, and and Connors was a real mentor for him, and then Connors crushes him in this match in the end, like the worst match loss of his career, which kind of ends his career in some ways. Yeah, and you're waiting for the very end for the like the fact that well, you know, that was going to happen, and. But what you get at the end is that, that, that he's never called him again. And which, what I realize is, I think a lot of people are going to watch that and say, oh, oh, you know, in the end, Jimmy Connors isn't a great guy. But I don't know what it, I don't know whether he's a great guy or he's not a great guy. I just know that, like I did before I watched the documentary, I don't understand Jimmy Connors. And we would all like to think we understand everybody. But the thing is, like, he's kind of not completely understandable, and he's a fascinating person, and he's one of the best tennis players that ever lived. And he could do things under pressure that nobody else could do. And I, you know, it's fascinating to watch it. And almost kind of in the way at the as it ended, I was kind of like, I love the way you save that to the end where he's like, it, it, it shocks everyone. who's do, You see the shock on the interviewer's parts, too, at that point. Like, yeah. what do you mean he never called you again? You've never spoken to him? You know, and it's funny because, like, he says, what did you expect me to do? Apologize? And it's funny because he does not owe Aaron Christine an apology. But in his head, he thinks people expect that of him in a way. You yeah. Know? Well, the burden of thanks. It's so great that you uh, understand that movie so clearly and then hate you that way. Yeah, we were. Fa I mean, we were just totally fascinated by him. Um, yeah. And uh, you'll really like the Ricky Williams one. I'll I'll like uh, email you exactly what it is so you can watch. I'll it have because... them. I have them all. Oh, so watch that. I have all Roger, three of them, yeah. I have to let you go in a second because um, it's uh, our time is up. But I I have to thank you. Um, I sort of quickly told you this when I saw you the other night um, at the concert, but uh, when when I heard the demo from around here, I was working in the music business then. I wasn't yet, I was a blocked writer, and I wasn't yet somebody who would go out and, and do this. And my whole job in life was to find talent, and a, a guy I worked with had gotten the demo. And he, I heard it, and I heard the first verse, and then when I heard the second verse, my entire life up to that point... When I heard a piece of music like that, I would get excited. I would want to tell everybody I knew. It would move me so deeply. And all I felt was rage that somebody else had found it before I did. And that I couldn't profit from this. Because I knew instantly you were going to have the biggest album of the year. It was so clear. And it was uh, lyrically so true and strong. And I remember going home in, a, in angry and telling my wife, like, Oh man, Fred got this tape, and then like the next day, he sent some A and R guy to person in San Francisco to go see you play, who didn't get it. And I remember then he didn't pursue it, and Gary Gersh signed you to Geffen. But that was the first thing that made me know. I woke up the next morning, and I, I was like, I've become a terrible music business person. I'm one of those holes now. I don't even hear the music for music. And it was one of the things that made me absolutely like one of the first building blocks that made me know I have to leave that life. And so then when our first movie happened and you did the song at the end of Rounders, <laughs> it, it, it went full circle and, and just was just incredibly important and beautiful that like somehow in a way you could, an unintended consequence you never have, 
like that was one of the first things that pushed me to say like i have to get back to a place where i just appreciate artists like this and where i can like love them without wanting anything in return so you know thanks for that hey no problem um <laughs> rounders man we really loved that that was great to work on and it kicked off like a we all went to see the movie together and then it just kicked off like a seven or eight year poker game that like ran makes me so happy it ran David Levine and I who wrote it both make us, makes us both really happy that you guys were playing poker for eight years after that uh, that song people love that song they ask me every day well, are you ever going to put it on a record a compilation on anything <sighs> that's my fault I mean I, I really love that song and I loved the movie, and I was so inspired writing that song, and I thought we recorded it. was just so cool. You killed it, yeah. You know, it's a great piece of recording, and I loved it so much. And there were two songs that I wrote during that record that became parts of movies. Colorblind went in Cruel oh, Intentions, yeah. and, and that went in Rounders. And I just really, really wanted it for our movie, for our record. And I just said, so I, I didn't allow them to use it for the movie. I allowed them to use it in the movie. I was happy to give it to them for the movie, but not for a soundtrack, because I just wanted... I wanted it to be creative, I wanted it to be in the movie, and I wanted to be able to use it for our record. And and then, as so often happens, like, sometimes, like, I'm just really strict about sequencing records. They have to work from start to finish. The story has to work. So I have left some of my absolute favorite songs off records because of that, and I left that one off that record, and because there's no soundtrack album... Because I didn't give it to them, there's no soundtrack album, and it means that, that song is nowhere except I, on the end of Rounders. I keep thinking it'll show up on some rarities. Like, I have it, and once in a while, I'll, like, you know, send it to somebody who really asks me. If they ask me, like, ten times, I'll be like, all right, I'll send you this. So there might be, like, ten files out there of the song. I don't even have a good copy. I have one I got off the internet one time, but, like, off a of Counting Crows fan site. Um, the funny thing is, I'm sure it will turn up in when we do some kind of compilation for Desert Life or something, but, the you know, it was just... I so badly wanted that song for our album, and my desire and my love for that song resulted in it's nowhere. <laughs> like, literally is nowhere, except you can see it on the end of the movie. You know, well, that's it. Great result. I had so many more things I wanted to ask you, but, man, thank you for doing this, Adam, and uh, for making music and for fighting the fight to stay, you know, sane and here. And even if you say you're just doing the music for yourself, you have to know that you're really doing it for all of us. So thanks for that, and uh, keep playing. And I hope you can do this again when your next Thanks, man. Out. Thanks for listening. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. And Adam is on Twitter at Counting Crows. Right? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.